It is a joy to be here with you. Glad that uh, I was invited out. Love your pastor. I've known him for several years personally. Uh, we've known one another for a long time uh, through email correspondence. And it was coming into the CREC, I was able to meet him uh, in person and, and love him greatly. And uh, just a little bit, yeah, that, that some of that's some dated material on the back of the book, things we're we're fruitful and multiplying as somebody said we're multiplying like catholic rabbits and so um our um our children are very productive and uh we have seven grandchildren one on the way and so that's it's a it's a beautiful thing uh six children in total uh they are just about all to leave the home uh our daughter our last daughter who is at home is getting married this june and so um, we are about to be empty nesters, and we thank God for that period of our lives, too. Uh, just a, a little bit more about that. Uh, it was mentioned that I went to Mid-America Baptist Theological Seminary, pastored a Baptist church. Uh, just to let you know that, uh, what, <laughs> what went on there. Uh, between children two and three, we became Reformed Presbyterians. Uh, so that's, uh, I, I was pastor of the church then, and it's a church that's now in the CREC. It was a Baptist church. We all kind of we all moved into the PCA together, and then they eventually moved into the CREC. The PCA is the only thing we knew at that time, and so we have we've we've run the gamut, and as far as the denomination. So that is some of my story, and but I that's not why I'm here is to tell you my story. I want to talk to you tonight about child rearing specifically and specifically in the in the first session parents as culture builders in ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4 uh, paul in a very well-known passage says fathers do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the lord now let's pray together once again Father, we are grateful for your word. We thank you for how you teach us, and we pray that you would instruct us even this night by your spirit. Open our hearts to hear and receive, love and obey all that you speak to us this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Once upon a time, there were three farmers, and if you, if you could call them all farmers, for one farmer, Sloth, inherited the family farm, but he didn't lift a finger to do any work. The, the other two farmers, Faithful and Diligent, worked hard every day. All three obviously had their own plots of ground. The Sloth busied himself with everything but farming. He was proud to have the old family farm and would even brag about how proud he was to be a great landowner. However, his attention, uh, his attention was on other things all the time. He was only interested in having the name in the community that came with being the owner of this family farm. Faithful and diligent also inherited family farms in different parts of the same state. They both worked tirelessly to care for their farms in order to produce crops. While they were different in some respects, they were pretty much mirror images of one another. They got up early, worked hard, used many of the same methods, seeds, and fertilizers. When harvest season rolled around, Sloth received exactly what you would think he would receive, absolutely nothing. He hadn't put in the work. It was obvious all year he would receive no crop. Faithful had a bumper crop. 
he, he, had, uh, he put in the work. It seemed like every seed he planted came up and everything produced abundantly. Diligent, however, had some problems. Only about half of his crop came in. The other half, whether because of the nutrients of the soil, disease, or bugs, he didn't know. It, his, his crop failed. It was inexplicable. Now, we understand sloth and faithful. This is what we expect. If you don't work, you get nothing. And if you do work, you see fruit. It's diligent we don't understand. He worked hard. He did everything that faithful did, but he lost some of his crop. This happens in parenting sometimes. We are farmers. We are cultivating little plots of soil that have been given to us by God. The slothful parents generally don't see any fruit in the form of faithful children, although God graciously surprises us by delivering children from the sins of their slothful parents. But we sometimes expect that if we are faithful and diligent in our parenting, doing all the right things, that none of our children will ever apostatize. They'll never leave the faith. And this just simply isn't the case. Apostasy is a mystery. And the best father that, ever, that there ever was had an apostate son. And I'm speaking about God, of course. And Adam sinned with a perfect father and a perfect environment. So what I'm teaching you and what I'll teach you over these next two sessions is not about foolproof method, methods of parenting. That is a, a method that will ensure that none of your children will ever apostatize or that they will always be successful. It can happen to the best parents, Christian parents. As I will emphasize throughout children, people in general aren't machines. Where you punch in a few lines of code or turn a wrench here and there and just everything works. But I can tell you that if you're a slothful parent in these areas, you will be held responsible before God for your lack of faithfulness. And more than likely, you're not going to get results. If results or fruit aren't assured, why should I do these things, you might ask? Because just as in every area of life, God has called you to be faithful. And that is what you are to be, that's what you will be held accountable for. Not only this, God works through means he has designed and commanded to bring about the fruit he desires. You do have great influence over your children. But as Solomon teaches in Ecclesiastes, ultimately you are not in control. You cannot shepherd the wind or shape the vapor. And I'm not trying to discourage you. I'm just trying to keep everything very real. This keeps you humble in your parenting, staying on your face before God for your children, even after they have gone, as I can attest, as well as looking at, with grace on other parents. Now, there are some challenges as Reformed folks. We can't justify slothfulness in parenting by excusing it with God's sovereignty. I've seen this. Well, God's sovereign, they just apostatize. Well, that's not, all, that's not, that's not always a good answer, all right? Sometimes it's just the laziness of the parents who didn't want to do what they, wanted, or what they ought to have done. But here's the other challenge. When you've done all you know to do, learning how to mourn straying children without constantly beating yourself up over it, you realize they have choices to make as well. All right? So trying to keep everything in proper tension, proper relationship with one another. You're not... There, there is no method. There is no surefire way to make sure everything's going to turn out just perfect, all right? But there are some principles, and there is hope, and I'm going to hopefully share that hope with you. What are you responsible for as a parent? Well, you are responsible for cultivating a Christian culture in your home. You are culture builders. I read to you from Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4 
though there are two words that are translated there that that have various translations over across the English translations and they are the discipline and instruction that we heard in the English Standard Version the first word really speaks about enculturation that is you're to bring them up in the culture of the Lord the second word translated instruction speaks about creating a way of thinking the idea of warning is in the word that is and that's why the old King James used admonition there is an idea of warning in the word this is but this is not merely an infusion of information though that is certainly included this is a matter of shaping desires what the child loves and hates what he pursues and what he shuns this is not done by putting him in the right schools, having him read the right books, having him memorize his catechism, or having him worship every week. All those have their place, and they are all quite important in the development of the child. Culture is more caught than taught. All things are, all things are necessary, all the teachings necessary, but there has to be something that is greater than the sum total of its parts. This culture is more caught than taught. That is, culture is cultivated by routines, rituals, attitudes, and actions. There is some shared calendar, for instance, that you have with one another. Family meals every night are very important in the culture of a home. Things like that, that, that bring you together. Things that you share together. Your children's desires are shaped by how we as parents live. They're shaped by imitation. In Ephesians chapter 5, excuse me, throat just went dry. Uh, in Ephesians, I have water. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1, Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Children learn by imitation. What you love and what you make beautiful in your home, they will want to be a part of somehow because, number one, they want to be close to you. And number two, they want to be like you. Okay, they want to be like you. You're not, the, you're not the only images in their lives to which they will want to conform. Of course, they're going to want to be like Taylor Swift. I'm joking. They ought not to want to be like Taylor Swift. But you're the main ones, and you want to keep them from acting like Taylor Swift, especially in the early years. I can't even believe I brought her name up. I can't stand her. Anyway, um, some of the most <clears throat> basic aspects of culture in general are learned through imitation. The, the primary example is speech, language. So how do your children learn to speak English? They do it by imitation. You speak to them, and they eventually begin to respond by mimicking back words and phrases. Now, they are their own little people. They formulate words and, and, and sentences sometimes in odd ways, but they're speaking back to you what you have spoken to them. You don't speak English to them, and then one day they start responding in French. This continues throughout their formative years. Okay, the way you speak, harshly, gently, and what you say, edifying words, destructive words, they're all imitated. They're all imitated. Everything that you do is imitated by them somehow. And the longer you parent, the more you can see you and your spouse in your children your habits, your mannerisms, all those things. They learn to relate to you and the world around them by the way you teach them to speak. Little boys want to show strength, and, and they think their dad is the toughest guy on the block, and whatever strong words he uses, they're going to use. 
Being wimpy will also create effeminate boys. This extends to everything in your home. Problems come when there is a disconnect between the information they are learning and the actual culture of the home. They learn that the information is important to learn, but not important enough to live out. So you're telling them one thing, but you're giving them an example of another thing. That is, that is cognitively dissonant. They can't put that together. But, but what they're going to default to is acting like you. They're not going to simply say, okay, well, he told me to do this, but he acts this way, so I'm going to do what he told me. They're going to act like you. For example, you read Proverbs to your children, teaching them that sloth, the neglect of responsibility, is sin, and therefore not the way of discipline, but you neglect your responsibility with them, work around the home in general, or don't make them take responsibility by enforcing consequences. Uh, for their neglected responsibilities, and as your child grows, he becomes a leech on you, and you start to wonder, well, I read Proverbs to him every day. Why, what went wrong? Why is he becoming like this? Because you taught him that. You didn't teach him by words. You taught him by your own actions. So you have to be careful there. You have to be careful at what example you're putting before your children. And the proper examples, also they will also imitate. The, so there, there can't be a disconnect between the information and the formation of the child and the formation of the culture. Now, as Christian parents, our fundamental responsibility to our children is to make the Christian life beautiful before them by the way we shape our family lives around the kingdom mission. Now, again, this is not about having the perfect family, the sinless family, no conflict ever, all those things. Part of developing a Christian culture is, in fact, learning how to deal with sin personally and in one another, learning how to humble ourselves and ask for forgiveness and extend forgiveness and teaching others to do the same. So this isn't, about, this isn't about having the perfect family. It's learning about how to live in a Christian culture, how to develop that in your home. So what is the Christian culture? Well, the Christian culture is a Trinitarian culture. Now, the only way we know the Trinitarian culture is because it's been revealed in Scripture. But it's very clear about how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the original family, relates to one another. We begin here because we're Christian, which means that we have become a part of this family and are therefore called to live as a part of his family. And so he's incorporated us into his family, and he says, I want you to look like us. That's it. I want you to look like us. Now, if we don't begin with this foundation or we lose this foundation, we lose our moorings for why we're doing what we're doing and what ultimately shapes us. The class becomes a class of methods. Methods left unhinged from something solid becomes just good behavior, and it becomes very short-sighted. Christian parenting is, and I'm going to use a big word here, Christian parenting is eschatological. That is, it looks long-term. It doesn't look simply at the immediate. It looks, where is all this heading? What I'm doing now, what my child's doing now, everything. Where is all this heading? If I do this, if I plant these seeds here, what's the crop that's going to come? Christian parenting is always looking toward the future. You're aiming to shape the way the child thinks, feels, responds, shaping his heart the way he's going to be in the future. Monkeys and dogs can learn behavioral reactions. If, we all, if all we have are methods and hard, hard and fast rules, we're not enculturating our children. We're not creating this culture. There's a place for these when children are really young, but as they grow, rules will not be enough. 
There's still right and wrong, sin and righteousness, but there's not a rule for everything, and there's not a rule for everything even in the Scriptures. They, they must be taught according to the principles of Scripture and then learn how to apply those principles as they grow. This means that the parent must parent according to the principles and applications as they vary throughout life. And when they run out of the rules when they're older, how will they know how to respond to temptation or make the decisions about a spouse or a job or whatever? As your children grow, questions of what is good and why it is good will come. Those are ultimately cultural questions, you might say. Now, I'm going to talk to you about how principles apply, but I want to give you some, tool, uh, I, I want to give you some tools and teach you how to work with them so that you can work with your children according to the grain God has created in them. Parenting, though, requires thinking. Not just thoughtlessly applying this or that method like you're repairing a car. It, it, it requires constant, diligent thinking. And these children just keep growing and they keep moving into new stages of life and requires more thinking. And that is, becomes the challenge of parenting. Now, culture is inescapable. You're, you are creating a culture in your home, and I want you to understand that. You are creating a culture in your home. The, the only question is, are you consciously and deliberately creating a culture, or are you just floating along and reacting to things? Culture is inescapably religious. Fundamental, there are fundamental, belief, uh, fundamental ways of believing and acting. Culture becomes the way we see and interpret the world, not just a set of do's and don'ts. People in the world around us are not just levers on a machine that you need to, that you need to know precisely the time to pull or a computer program that you simply need to get all the zeros and ones in the right place. Culture is the way we then we look at the world. That is, for instance, I told you earlier, you, you teach your child English by imitation. Language is a big part of culture, okay? I begin to name things. I begin to understand things, not through Chinese, not through French. I understand it through English. This is the way I, under, I understand the world. The culture that you're creating in your home, this is the way your child's going to understand the world. This is the way he's going to live. This is, this is how he's going to understand God, his relationship to God, and how he's going to understand the world around him everything culture has laws of good and evil but they are fundamental they are part of the fundamental ways of life's basic questions are answered it is a way of thinking a way of feeling it is a way of heart loyalty it is a way of acting so a, per, a person's culture answers basic questions of life things like who am i why am i here how do i live my life so this session, some of the basics of developing Trinitarian culture in the home will be discussed about who am I, who are we. Now this is not exhaustive, and we're talking about this Trinitarian culture. We are part of this Trinitarian culture. We're part of this culture that God has created, or that God is, I should say. And he's created for us, and, and he's brought us in. So who are we? Who am I? Who are we? This has to be settled from the beginning. We are a Christian family. That is not optional. You are baptized into the triune name of God. You're members of the family of God. This begins with the identity of your child. This is what you teach your child. This is how you relate to your child. Your child is a Christian. This is his fundamental identity. 
It is more fundamental than your last name. If you have a daughter, her last name is going to change. Christian should never change. Her fundamental identity, her, your son's fundamental identity is Christian, and this must get right from the, you must get this right from the beginning. We don't press for crisis conversion experiences. We don't make them doubt the love of their Heavenly Father for them. We work with them on the basis that they belong to God. It is a position from which we work as parents and not one of the goals of parenting. There are goals and how you see this fundamentally will shape the way you accomplish your goals. The child doesn't have a choice in the matter any more than he had a choice of being born, being born to you, or bearing your name. He is to bear the, he is to bear the name of God in baptism. And that becomes his fundamental identity from which you work in how you relate to him. You will appeal to him on the basis of who he is. Now, some folks may say, well, is that presumption? No, it's not. It's based on God's promise, summarized in the promise, I will be a God to you and to your seed after you. Spoken clearly to Abraham, but also repeated by Peter in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 39. Now, people are afraid of, a, of, of presumption, and that, that's a a legitimate fear. They, they're afraid that this is going to promote presumption, that you teach your children that they're Christians and they're going to be, they're going to, they're going to presume upon God's grace. That's a real, that, 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 that's a legitimate fear. That can happen. And it does for some, just like getting them to a crisis point of conversion and basing everything on a prayer that they prayed. When I was growing up in the Baptist church, what you did was you, say, you prayed the sinner's prayer, you wrote the date down in the, at, at, in, in the, leaf, the fly leaf of your Bible, and anytime Satan came back to you and said, hey, you know, you're not a Christian, you go back to, the, that, you go back to that fly leaf of your Bible and you, uh, you tell him, no, 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 on that day I pray to receive Christ. Of course, that's not scriptural. <laughs> what is scriptural is God baptized me he declared me his in baptism, and therefore I am his. I, am, I belong to God. And so that is not presumption. Now, children can grow up thinking <laughs> that they don't have to do anything. They don't have to live out their faith. Not pressing them for a crisis conversion experience doesn't mean that we don't teach them to trust Christ. We, we teach them what it means to live and walk by faith in Jesus every day. What it means to repent and believe every day of their lives. We put Jesus' word above our own or anyone else's. This is what he said about me in baptism. This is what he says about me. I belong to him. And so if Satan comes along or somebody, one of his workers comes along in the human form, I point back to that. I don't point back to my word about God. I point back to God's word about me. You need to take care, though, that you and they understand that just because they've been baptized and they're participants in the table doesn't mean that they're not required to live in certain ways. Baptism and the table are the places from which the rest of life flows where we are taught how to live 
your child is a Christian, but your child is also a sinner. Baptism is not given to those already clean. Your child is not conceived in innocence. He is not born in innocence. He is a sinner. And baptism does not completely obliterate the sin nature in your children. You only have to parent about two minutes to figure that one out from some very practical theology. It is effective for the forgiveness of sins from the time of baptism to the time of death. That's, that's why we don't have to rebaptize, is because it is effective. God's word is effective for our children. But that doesn't mean, again, that your child is not or no longer a sinner. It doesn't mean that he's not a Christian anytime, he's, anytime he sins. This is where the parents fall into, I, I don't know if he really is a believer. He, he sinned. Well, I don't know if you're really a believer then. Uh, you sin all the time, all right? What do you do about it? Well, you confess your sins and you ask God to forgive you. Well, that's what your child's supposed to do. That's exactly what he's supposed to do. Now, uh, you have to realize in your parenting that sin is wrapped up with the identity of your child right now. It's not a primary or fundamental, it's not primary or fundamental to his identity, saying one day he's going to be rid of it in the resurrection, but it is there, and it perverts everything that is good. So understand that. He is a Christian. He is a sinner. He's also a blessing. All right? Throughout Scripture, these are the things that you need to understand about your child. He's a blessing. From Genesis chapter 1, it says, God blessed them and told them to be fruitful and multiply. Children are the blessing of God. This is stated again in Psalms 127, 128, and places like that. Your children are a blessing. Sometimes we think when they act right, they're blessings. <laughs> and it is. It is a blessing when they act right. <laughs> but they are blessings even when they're not acting right. They're objectively a blessing to you. They do give you joy and rest to your heart when they act right. Proverbs 29, 17 speaks about that. Your children, though, are a gift from God, and as with all gifts, they require diligent stewardship. They require work, but they are his blessing to you. Both you and they need to know this. They need to know they are a blessing. As a parent, you need to be thanking God daily for your children. Now, Fruitfulness in Scripture, when it says that God blessed them and told them to be fruitful and multiply, fruitfulness in Scripture is not merely, when I talk about God's blessing, fruitfulness in Scripture is not merely in the number of children that you have, but in how you rear them and what you cultivate in their lives. These blessings can turn into curses, all right? They are God's blessing to you, but they have to be nurtured. They have to be stewarded. They have to be cultivated, or they will become curses to themselves and to people around them and to the world. God wants lots of fruit, but he wants us to be faithful gardeners so that our children don't turn out to be thorns and thistles. Blessings can become curses, as I said, with poor stewardship. Many children, if not chained faithfully, will be a curse to the world. So, your children, as they are given to you, they are Christian. They are sinners. They are a blessing. But who are you? 
who are you in this Christian culture? You are the parents. And I'm speaking specifically now, of course, about the parent-child relationship. You are a steward of God's child. He belongs ultimately to God, and you are his manager, so to speak. You are the steward. You have given him up in baptism, and God gives him back to you to develop him as a part of his creation project. Besides your own body and your spouse, God gives you this other bit of creation over which he's appointed you to, uh, as a steward. And it is required of stewards, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.1, that you be found faithful. I, I used that kind of uh, that imagery in the beginning about the farmer. That, that, is, that, is a proper, that is a proper image. God has given you this plot of land. We're made of dirt from the beginning. And God, and, and we've talked about being fruitful and multiplying. So we are little plots of, of land. We're little gardens that need to be cultivated. And this little chunk of earth that is your child is to be plowed and cultivated and made fruitful. And since the fall, farming has become difficult work. As I told you, your child's a sinner. The natural thing for him to produce are thorns and thistles. And so parenting is about fighting to overcome those thorns and thistles and to make your garden beautiful. You have a responsibility as a parent farmer to fight back against these thorns and thistles through faithful gardening and parenting. Like your children, you are a sinner. You're going to sin. and Sometimes you're going to sin terribly. In those times, especially as your, child, as your children get older, you need to humble yourself before them and ask for forgiveness when you, when you mess up in parenting, when you do the wrong things, or you found out you have been doing the wrong things. There's not a, there's not a problem. In fact, it's a good thing for you to go back and ask them for forgiveness. But also, there's another thing about you and your children is that you are different from one another. I know this seems very obvious, but within the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are not the same. They are equal in power and glory, but they are distinguished as persons. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Son is not the Father. We are distinguished as individuals within the Trinity. They, your children are different from you. They're going to be similar characteristics, but your child is not you. So don't presume upon your child by thinking that he's just like you, that, that you, must, you must learn, you must be a student of your children. You must study them carefully. Don't assume things. They're also different from their siblings. Each child, I have six children. They have, several of them have similar characteristics. But they're all extremely different. And it's, it is a job <laughs> to learn each one of them. And that is the responsibility of the parent. They are, each sibling is different. As you deal with each child, you're going to have to deal with him or her specifically, according to his or her personality. They will vary and you have to get to know your children. Again, they're not machines. This is not one simple method, and then you just treat them all the same. This is not, you know, just big, this big manufacturing uh, uh, company or anything. You, you have to work with the grain of your child. Now, this doesn't mean capitulation. It means that each child 
will have his distinct personality. As a parent, you must learn to work with and shape the personality and see that personality matured in godliness. For example, in corrective discipline. And I say corrective because discipline, as we're going to learn, is really always aimed toward positive, but many times all we think about when we hear discipline is corrective. But I'll use it for an example right now. Corrective discipline. As they grow and you move away from spankings, different forms of painful correction may be used for different children. Grounding one, cutting him off from all social activities, may be very painful for that child. To another, and I have children like this, to another, grounding may be freedom. I, it's reinforcing antisocial behavior. I love being by myself. Send me to my room, please, and make me stay there. Don't make me interact with these, these people. It's too peopley out there. I want to be away from everybody. Grounding will not work for him. He wants, he'll mess up. He'll, he'll disobey you so he can be grounded. All right? So you have to work with your children. This means that you're going to have to be engaged with each child and think. Not just use the rod or teach the catechism or whatever. You're going to have to think. And yes, parenting is exhausting. If you're exhausted as a parent, you might be doing it right. All right? Because it is exhausting. It's called parenting, and good parenting ain't easy. Good farming is not easy. You have to work hard. Well, there's something else in the, in, the, in, the Trinitarian, in the Trinitarian life, in the Trinitarian culture, and that is there is, there is authority structure. The Trinity has structure, Father, Son, and Spirit, and they relate to one another. In, they all have equal worth and being. All are equally God, but there's structure and authority. They relate to one another in different roles of authority. In Ephesians 3, 14 and 15, this structure is imaged in our relationships. <clears throat> Paul talks about how God's paternity, God's fatherhood, is shown in all the world. Now, this isn't limited to the parent-child relationship, but he's showing that there's, there's a structure. Now, there's a structure of authority in your home, in relationship to your children. And you need to understand this. You are the parent. So what? Well, we brought you all the way down here to tell, to tell us the obvious, right? Yes. Yes, you did. You are the parent. Christian children are given direct commands to obey you. In Ephesians chapter 6, I, what, verses 1 through 3, which I did not read, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. <clears throat> this is a reiteration of the fifth commandment. This means that as a parent, you have authority. Now, that authority is delegated, is not absolute. That means you can't just do anything that you want. You have to work within the parameters God has given you. But it is real authority. Our authority is image of God. It's not God's. You can't command anything you want out of the child, but it is real authority. And it needs to be made clear to your child that there are clear authoritative distinctions between you and him. And it's best to start that at a very early age. And that needs to be established. Sometimes parents treat parenting small children as if they're in negotiations with terrorists. <laughs> These little things are about to blow up if I don't capitulate to their demands. Well, especially when your children are young, and I'm talking about toddlers and under five, obedience is not a negotiation. 
It is, we do not negotiate with terrorists, all right? That is a standard policy in the home. You be the parent, all right? Do not spare for his crime. Don't be a wimp. I'm not talking about going in every once in a while, just going in and like Jesus did with the temple and swinging the whip and everything to show your power. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being consistently firm, day in and day out, holding the lines that need to be held even when you are tired. I know you're tired. We all get tired. It's difficult work. And if you're whining all the time about how hard it is and about how you never get to do what you want to do, you're going to be bitter and discontent, and you're going to cultivate that in your children and in the culture of your home. Accept what God has given you with gratitude and ask him for strength and keep plowing cheerfully. This is your God-given vocation. If you don't teach your child to submit to authority and be content in his circumstances, you're going to have one angry, discontent child on your hands. And as he, grow, as he grows up, he's going to believe because you taught him that every time he throws a fit or threatens to blow things up, he, he can get what he wants. In other words, he's going to grow up to be a Democrat. I, uh, <laughs> sorry. Liberal, something like that. All right. The world simply doesn't work that way, or it shouldn't. <laughs> he may make a good whining social liberal in America, but he won't become a good, godly, productive member of the kingdom of Christ. You have to teach him how to be content. And some of that is we're not negotiating on obedience. Authority is to be used for the good of the one under, the, under authority. Remember that God's glory is ultimately seen in the cross where he used his authority to give up his life for his people. Using authority is not about getting my way. All right? Using your authority is about shaping your child into the person he needs to be. And he, lear he needs to learn authority structures. He needs to learn respect. He needs to learn obedience. One thing he must learn is how to live under this authority. And when he doesn't learn, when he doesn't learn to live under authority, he is doomed to death because he is living contrary to the image of God. Egalitarianism, that is, everybody just kind of equal in the home. There's no real structure. It's not good for your child. I don't care what... I do not care what people out there are telling you, what you know, child specialists are telling you, whatever. Egalitarianism is not, it is poison in your home. In child rearing, uh, egalitarianism in child rearing is only another name for abdication and sloth. Exercising proper biblical authority is difficult work. There it is again. There's no way around that aspect of child rearing. You're going to have to be tough and persevere. And you're going to have a lot of questions sometimes about whether or not you're being too tough or, you know, whether or not you really understood the situation. Uh, that means you're working. And you need to do that. Once this parenting thing starts, it doesn't stop. It's relentless. <laughs> I hope you're encouraged. Um, <laughs> it is, though. I just want you, again, to keep real and keep realistic expectations. This it doesn't, this doesn't mean that it's all hor horrible, it, but it is work, and you must steal your will. Your authority is given to you by God as an implement in farming, so to speak, and you need to use it to make your child fruitful. This is not an absolute rule, but good application of the principle of respecting authority. Uh, I'm in the South again, kind of, in the Austin area, right? Um, Mr. or Mrs., ma'am, sir, 
those are good things and lots of times they've been lost and i'm not saying they they can't be uh where they're not used people aren't respecting authority i'm just saying those are good things that can be used that can be tools to help teach that difference in the respect the, the Trinitarian authority, the Trinitarian structure is also, our culture is also one of love. We know from 1 John 4, 8 that God is love. He willingly gives himself for the sake of others, even before creation. And that's what we do in our homes. And it starts with a husband and wife relationship. Begin developing the culture as you love one another. I can't overstate the importance of the parents' relationship mom and dad's relationship in child rearing one of the best things you can do for your children is continually work on your relationship in the home your children feel your children smell your relationship they know what's going on sometimes they can't put it into words if mom and dad are at odds with one another they feel it and they can't explain it they don't know what to do with those feelings it's one of the reasons a lot of children act up or act out as some people say is because they are just balled up with all this tension because mom and dad are at odds with one another when there's tension in the home like that when the love is not evident your child's not going to relax he can't relax and he doesn't know what to do with it you have to work on your relationship. You have to love one another. This means that there needs to be time for mom and dad, not just to get away from the children, but for mom and dad in front of the children. This may become an occasion in which you, that, that is, I know we did it in our home, we had couch time. Mom and dad had couch time, and at, at a certain time in the evening, while the children were still awake, and they could not disturb us for a certain amount of time. They saw us sitting together on the couch. They saw us talking with one another if we kept our eyes open and could stay awake. Um, but they saw us together and they saw us loving one another. And if they came up and said, we want to sit, no, no, you go play right now. Whether it was for 30 minutes or for an hour or for three days, it, you know, um, we took some time to do that in front of them so that they could see us loving one another. And it was a tremendous uh, help to them and it when mom and dad's okay your children are going to be they're going to say okay it's it's fine i don't have to be worried so they have to learn that they are not the center of the world they they are not the center of attention they are not the center of your world they're not the center of the world this means that they're not entitled to your complete and undivided attention whenever they want it they need to learn to respect the fact that you're not that when you're in a conversation with someone else that they can they can learn to be patient this is learning to put others in front of themselves this is learning to love other people you teach them that when you take time for one another while they're awake and you tell them that they're not to disturb you they can occupy themselves it's okay they're not going to die in fact it's good for them all right, love expresses itself in affection. You need to show affection to your children, boys and girls, in, in, in respect to their sex, of course, but you need to show affection. This is not just a matter of saying, I, I, I love you, even though that's important. Show them physical contact, hugs, kisses, 
body slamming your sons, things like that. Those are good things. Until the age he can body slam you, then it's done. <laughs> it's over, okay? Then there's uh, love shows itself in otherness. First of all, in the parent's life, you must accept the fact that the gift of children means that you give up your rights to other things and that you live your life for the sake of your children to see them grow and be faithful Christian men and women. That doesn't mean that they're the center of the world, but they do occupy a lot of your time at a certain stage of your life. Moms, this doesn't rule out working outside the home necessarily, but you have to think about the impact it's going to have on your children, especially your younger children. If it, is, if, it is if it is possible in the least, and there are circumstances where I realize it's not possible, you need to do, to do whatever you can to be at home with your young children. Sometimes work outside the home is, is not as much a problem as being involved in church activities and other things. You need to be careful not to over-schedule things. You can get so busy trying to do everything that you're neglecting your primary responsibility of just rearing your children. Your life for theirs is Christian parenting. Otherness in your child, how he, how he shows love, how she shows love. One fundamental in rearing children is teaching your child, again, that the world doesn't revolve around him. If he's making other people uncomfortable, he needs to be taught to think about that. If he always butts in and he thinks he needs to be heard when he wants to be heard, he needs to be taught that that is not loving. That is not what Christians do. Love involves deference to others. If your attitude is, well, they're children, and other people just need to understand, you're not in the proper mindset yourself. Of course, there are people who are Scrooges, who are impatient with children. You don't want to be around them too much. But you must teach your children that they are to consider the needs of others and what they want before their own desire to yell, scream, destroy, and pillage. There will be contexts in which they can cut loose, but they have to learn the differences between contexts, which, which is the difference between maturity and immaturity. When you take your children to others' homes, the people extending hospitality to you shouldn't just understand that children will be children and it's okay to treat someone else's home with disrespect, destroying things. This is actually a violation of the Eighth Commandment, which not only forbids stealing, but promotes respect of the property of others. Now, all, people tend toward extremes here. Some people say, ah, I'm not going to worry about that at all. And then other people go all the way to the extreme and, and get to be nervous Nellies about everything. I don't want you to stay stressed out around people, but you need to be attentive to your children, especially when, you're, when they are younger. You can't be too caught up in your own conversations, that is what you want to do, to deal with your children. Keep an eye on them. Excuse yourself and deal with the situations if you need to. This deals with the worship service as well. Participate, they need to be participating to the level of their abilities at different ages. Actions that draw attention, unnecessary attention to themselves must be corrected. They must be thinking about others. This thinking of others also deals with teaching them context of where they are around others on church property. Running through com common spaces with older people around is a dishonor to gray heads whom they are to learn to respect. Children may have designated spaces to cut loose, but the whole world is not their playground. 
so that everyone must submit to their undisciplined wishes. Daddies and mamas, you have to teach them, which may mean that you don't get to stand around and have adult conversations at the coffee bar or wherever anytime you want. It comes with the territory of parenting. You want your children to be a joy to others, and they won't be if they're terrors all the time. The Trinitarian culture is also one of joy. God is eternally blessed, which means he's eternally happy. One of the many things that speaks about the fact, uh, one, one of the many things this speaks about is the fact that our God is indeed joyful. It is the fruit of the Spirit. Joy is that settled gladness that comes from contentment. It's contentment with who you are. Bad self-esteem generally is not, it, it comes from not being thankful to God for the way he made you and what he's done in your life. We take ourselves way too seriously, hating our limitations and all our little imperfections. And if you're frustrated with yourself, it will be evident in your relationships, your children and otherwise. So we need contentment in our relationships. There needs to be a genuine delight in one another and your duties toward one another. This doesn't mean that, you never, again, you never get tired or need, or need or want a break. It does mean that there need to be regular bouts of laughter in your home. There, you need to laugh with one another. Your children will reflect your joy or your dour discontentment. But also, if your children aren't properly disciplined and learn contentment, they will be angry. If your children aren't disciplined, you are rearing angry children. Joy is just as much a discipline as any other of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. Joy comes from learning to give thanks and thus being thankful. Joy comes from not having to have one's own way all the time, being content and satisfied and thankful for what you have. This is developed in places such as the table. Saying, having your children, dads, having your children thank, uh, thank their mother for the food, not just in the prayer, but also thank their mother for the prepared meal is a good practice. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for that. Eating what's put before them. Not saying, I don't like this, I don't want this. Refusing to eat. One practice that we had in our home was that it, they said, we don't, I don't want to eat this. I'm okay. You will eat it in the next meal. Well, the next meal is breakfast. Yep, you're having Brussels sprouts for breakfast. It'll be in the refrigerator for you, and it'll be cold. So you can eat it now, or you can eat it then. But you're going to eat it. Okay? The children of Israel in the wilderness, they had manna. They complained against God for it. They weren't thankful. And God said, I don't appreciate the grumbling and complaining for my provision. You teach your children to be thankful. You don't teach your children to be picky. That's, it, it, it's a beautiful thing, too, when they grow up and they learn how to eat things that they don't particularly like. When somebody extends hospitality to you and they go over to their home and they serve them something they don't particularly like, they, they can learn to eat it. And that's not an embarrassment to you. It's not a shame to you. They can, learn, they can learn this at play. They're not insisting on doing everything in their own way, or he quits. Not buying them everything they want. You also make special times for them. This is one of the ways you help them. You, you make special times for their birthdays and have everybody celebrate with them, but then you also make a big deal out of other family members' birthdays. 
Okay, these are, these are the ways to de de develop joy and gratitude toward one another. We parent by faith. All right, we believe what we believe about our children. And yes, I realize all this lecture is a fire hose. Garrett gave me two lectures to teach you everything you need to know about parenting. That's what he told me. And so this is it. You're going to have it rec recorded. And I, you can ask me questions later. We parent by faith. When do we need to quit? A few more minutes, yeah. I can do, yeah, I can finish in a few more minutes. I have this. Uh, the, the next lecture is going to be a lot shorter. Um, but parenting by faith. We believe what we believe about our children and ourselves in relationship to them by faith. We trust what God declares about us. We base the way we relate to them, how we treat them, how we discipline them, all by faith. That is, we hear what God says about us and them and our relationship, and that's what we believe. That's what we practice. Faith is not wishful thinking and simply hoping for the best. Faith is believing what God says and employing the means that he has given to us. Faith without works is dead. Christian parenting is, here it is again, it's hard work. We don't, we don't depend ultimately upon methods, even though God employs methods. We stay humble before him, we asking him, beseeching him for the sake of our children. Believing his promises, applying his means, and loving our children in and through all these things. Also, also, this also means that we parent our children in hope. As we stay faithful in parenting, we expect fruit. Humans are mysterious, and God's ways are mysterious. Adam, the sinless son of God, strayed from a perfect father in a perfect environment, but God does give us hope because Jesus is risen from the dead, and our parental labor is not in vain in the Lord, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. None of our parenting work will be empty. Now, someone, someone will say, well, what about that ironclad promise in Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Well, I'll only deal briefly with that here, but um, it really, the verse reads, train up a child according to his way, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Sometimes this is seen as a guarantee. It's an inviolable promise. But the whole context of Proverbs actually speaks against this. The summary, I'll summarize it here. It's basically saying you train a child according to his way, his sex, his age, his personality, his gifts, his in inclinations. You give him the fundamentals to build on for the rest of his life, and he'll not depart from it. This is the way he's to be trained. This is what you're supposed to do. This includes the way of wisdom, but the way here it seems to me can't refer to the way of wisdom exclusively. You train him according with the grain that God's created in your child. That's what I was talking about earlier with the personalities. You don't try to make him something he is not or train him against the way God's created him, trying to make him, act, try, for instance, trying to make a girl act like a boy or a boy act like a girl. You don't do that. You train him in the way God's created him. Now, with all this stuff, all the stuff that I've, that I've told, how, how do you start? The same way you eat an elephant. One bite at a time. This isn't going to happen tomorrow. Your children aren't going to be trained tomorrow. You have to prepare for the long, and play the long game. Make the changes slowly, but surely and consistently. What you do, what do you do if you've already established a different type of culture in the home? Well, we all mess up at points. We've all messed up. Remember, you're a parent, but you're a sinner. You're a Christian, but you're a sinner. You recognize and admit your failures. All right? Don't double down. 
on bad policy. <laughs> Realize what you've done. Say, okay, now we're going to right the ship. And then begin where you are. The past is gone. There's nothing you can do to change that. In bemoaning the past and letting your past failures control you, you're wasting precious time. Don't stay in the past. Another, another important aspect of this Trinitarian culture since God brought us sinners into the picture is confession and forgiveness, which I'll deal with more in the second talk. Confess it to God and ask for forgiveness. Ask Him to give you wisdom and strength to begin to establish these things in your home. If your children are old enough to understand it, you go to them and ask them to forgive you for not doing the things that you have done or not doing the things that you should have done. Humble yourself before them. And you can do that without giving up your authority. In fact, it strengthens your authority. In this action, you're teaching them how to handle sin, which is part of developing this culture in your home. In the next talk, we'll talk about how do you handle those who want to disrupt the culture in your home. We're going to talk about corrective discipline. For now, that's where I'm going to end. Let's pray together. Father, I do pray that you would make us and you, you would raise up godly, faithful parents among us and that we would, be, we would all continue to be faithful to you. And as, we, as new light is shed on what, we, uh, what we're doing, I pray, that, uh, I pray that you would make known where, we, where we've messed up, but also where we're being faithful and you would encourage us and that we would do the right things so that your kingdom would grow and advance in this world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.